And this will definitely be the last time we're going to turn to, to the Gospel of Mark. And then next week, Lord willing, begin um, with the next book of the Bible. Um, look at the book of Ephesians together. Um, so I want to actually really encourage you before next week, Sunday, to at least read through the whole book of Ephesians once. Um, and if you can, read it through in one sitting. Um, that is how the Bible was originally meant to be read and known is in one sitting to get like the, the big picture, the flow of thought and to really feel the whole weight of the letter. So to encourage you to do that um, as a family, if you can, or as an individual to, to prepare your heart also for the, the book of Ephesians. Um, honestly, Ephesians have really transformed the way I thought of Christians in general and also of the church, how important the church is. But today we're going to just look at the ending of Mark. Um, and we have some work to do. We have some work to do in this little ending here. And so let me just read the text for us and we'll dive in. So Mark 16 verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an awesome privilege to gather like this, to sing to you. Father, thank you for this awesome book that you've given us, your word. Lord, I pray that you will teach us tonight how precious our Bibles are. Teach us tonight how valuable this treasure is in our laps. And I pray that you will help us, give us clarity of thought of this ending, how to think about it, how to interpret it. Um, as Christians, Lord, and how to defend the faith, even as we read in Jude, to contend for the faith by objections using these very words that we've just read. So please, Lord, please help me, be merciful to me, and I pray, Lord, that you will edify and build us up tonight in your Son's name. Amen. So when you ask a child who has lived in the city for all his life, where do milk come from? Okay, the, this child has never been on a farm, never seen a cow. What, what is the, the general temptation for a child like that? Well, from pick and pay, right? That's where milk comes from, or spar, or whatever. But I, I, I suspect if you ask Christians today, in the 21st century, where does our Bibles come from? We might answer in a very similar way. Isn't it from Kumbuks? Right? Isn't it um, 
I know CNA has a couple of, didn't they write it? Like, where did it come from, right? And I think that is an unhappy ignorance. It's an unhappy ignorance. For some Christians, that's their thoughts. And then when they either go to university or they go and to evangelize with, or talk to Muslims or people from other faiths, and they hear the facts about where our Bible actually comes from, from non-believers, people who don't believe in the Bible, and they are so shocked to see that some verses have been added to the Bible or that some verses are taken out of the Bible or changed in some way. And then they leave the faith completely, only showing that they were never truly in the faith, never truly knew the Lord from the beginning. And I think this text we just read is one of those texts that people will point you to and see, see, some verses have been added to the Bible. And that's why you can't believe the Bible. The Bible is unreliable. You cannot believe it. Because this text has been added. So this afternoon, I will do something a bit different than what I usually do. Uh, my job as a pastor is very clear. Acts 6 verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's, my, that's the work of elders. We should pray and we should preach. 2 Timothy 4 2, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. When it's popular, when it's unpopular, just preach. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. God has called pastors and shepherds to open this book and explain its meaning to, to you to feed the flock and apply it to our lives. And I do that because I believe all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for all of us. But this afternoon, I'm not going to preach. Okay? Some of you are like shocked. Like, why, why am I here if you're not preaching? <laughs> because as we come to the ending of Mark, we are faced with this issue. Was Mark 16 verse 9 to 20 original to Mark? Was this part of his gospel or not? If not, how can we trust our Bibles? How do we know that other parts of the Bible haven't been added or sneaked in into our Bibles? How can we be even sure about the whole thing from the start then? These are questions I'm going to answer. And I think all of us should be able to answer those questions. If you are a believer in Christ, if you follow him, if you believe his word is inspired without error, without mistakes, you should be able to answer questions like these, at least in a, on an elementary level. So I'm not going to preach the Bible. I'm going to teach about the Bible. You see the difference there? So normally I just preach the Bible, what the Bible says, but now I'm not going to preach the Bible. I'm going to teach you about our Bibles and notice I haven't said at the beginning of the reading, this is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've skipped that part and they already gave away what I think about the ending of Mark. But so I want to help you know how can we trust our translations? How can we trust this book, if at all? Can we trust our modern translations? Because in the ESV and if you have another translation, you will see there's big brackets over verses 9 to 20, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. And the ESV expands on this and says some manuscripts end the book with 16 verse 8. Others include verses 9 to 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. So now there's material within the material. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told, and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them 
from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These manuscripts then continue with verses 9 to 20. So what do we do with this information? Not only was verses 9 and 20 not found in the earliest manuscripts, but there are also other additional endings of Mark. So we don't just have one ending, we have several endings of Mark. So what do we do? And that's not the only problem we have. Not only is the origin of verses 9 and 20 difficult, but the content of verses 9 and 20 is difficult. This is the famous text where the snake handling pastors come from. Have you ever seen those pastors where some pastors have died? The snake bit them and like, no, I trust the word of Jesus and they die because of this text. I've watched an atheist in a debate with a Christian use this text, take a cup full of poison and say, prove your faith, Christian. Your own Savior, your own Lord said, if you drink poison, you will not die. Come, prove your, your trust in the Lord. If you really believe his word, you'll do it, right? Because Mark 16 says. So do you see why this is an important topic for us to really understand and talk about? So we have some work to do, and we're going to do that tonight. So we only, I'm going to only answer three questions. So tonight's outline, we're going to look at three questions I want to answer. First, how did we get our Bibles? So we're going to look at like a little bit of a mini history of how we got our Bibles. Number two, should Mark 16, 9 and 20 be in our Bibles? And then lastly, how should we interpret those difficult verses in Mark? And that's what we're going to look at. And if you're interested in taking this study further, I want to recommend one book to you. This is uh, the book's name is The King James Only Controversy by James White. And this book is an excellent book. If you just want one book to summarize the history of the Bible, and especially um, with another issue with the King James Only Controversy that, that believes the King James is the inspired translation, um, then this book is the one book you should just get and read. And I'm willing to borrow my copy for you if you're really, really interested. Um, but I will make a note and track you down if you... <laughs> okay, that was just a joke. Don't, don't, don't be scared. Okay, but I also want to say I've borrowed heavily, of, I've, I've heavily relied on his work for this sermon as well. So just want to acknowledge that as well. So number one, let us consider where do we get our Bible? How do we get our Bibles? Probably the most basic fact we need to remember is that our Bibles have been originally written in three languages. Okay, Hebrew and Aramaic, the Old Testament, and in Koine Greek, New Testament, Koine simply meaning common Greek, the, the Greek of the common people. Beautiful that God has inspired his word in the common language that people might, everyone might understand. And, but we will only focus on the New Testament for this sermon. So important to remember is that you and I have zero original copies of the very first written documents of the New Testament. In other words, you and I do not have the original Ephesians, Philippians, Matthew's first writing down of those manuscripts. We don't have that. So how in the world do we then get our books? How do we know that this then is their writings? Well, I'm glad you asked. So as Paul, Mark, Luke, and Peter wrote their books, these books were given to the churches to be read out loud for these churches. And then these, these letters were circulated among the churches, and their books were handwritten because they had no printing press. They had no computers. They had no emails. They had no, so it was handwritten, and it was circulated like that. So what the early Christians did, beloved, this should encourage you. What the early Christians did is that they copied them by hand 
and as well as different manuscripts to have their own copy. So they would, if they wanted their own copy of the Bible, they had to literally sit down and write it out, word for word. It might have been hard, it might be hard for you and me to realize, but the majority of our first brothers and sisters never had a complete Bible in their, in their possession. Never. <laughs> like that was a luxury to have the entire Bible in your possession. And obviously, there were, there were various reasons why that was. Um, persecution, one reason. Government taking Bible copies and burning them. Um, you know, when, you're, when you are finally safe, trying to find room and place and time to copy. And then you're copying in, in incredible stress. And you make mistakes and things like that. So what the early church did was they often would memorize whole books of the Bible to try to preserve the Bible. For example, one might memorize the whole Gospel of Mark, <laughs> Mark chapter 1 till chapter 16. Another one might memorize 1 Peter, and then they change their names to the book they memorized. So then, if I've memorized Mark, my name was Mark. And if you memorize 1 Peter, hi, 1 Peter, how are you? Then on a Sunday morning, what the pastor would do is he says, hey, Mark, could you, could you give us a piece of Mark's Gospel? And Mark would stand up and quote from, from memory, a section of Mark, and hey, one Peter, why don't you share something about well, what Peter said? And Peter would stand up, one Peter would stand up and quote that section. You know, I wanted to call our second child um, Second Peter, but Deborah wasn't too impressed by that, so we made it something more. <laughs> I think it would have been cool, but again. But the most important reason why, the, why Christians didn't have an entire Bible in their own possession is that the Bible was handwritten, and if you wanted Mark, if you wanted John, you had to write it out yourself, and that was just a luxury very few people had. So James White in his book gives us a picture of how this would have worked. So if you would want to do this, this is how it would have worked. If you wanted a copy of the Gospel of John, either you had to pay a professional scribe to copy one for you, or you had to do it yourself. If you tried to do it yourself, you had to find someone to lend you his copy long enough for you to undertake this very difficult and very tedious task. Given that staying alive, avoiding famine, plague, or invading armies was a full-time job during those times, requiring a good deal of time and energy, it is easy to understand why most believers did not have a closet full of handwritten copies of the entire Bible. End quote. Now think with me as well. When you copy something from someone, something else, how easily do you make mistakes when you make copies of other people's um, copies? And what if you can't see well? What if your eyesight is bad? Remember, they didn't have glasses in those times. What if you can't see well? What if you can't read someone's handwriting? Have you ever tried reading a doctor's handwriting? Esther, I don't know. You might be an exception. <laughs> okay. So, so there are all these elements that, that's playing into this difficult task of trying to copy the Bible by hand. And that is why in our manuscripts of the New Testament, there's a lot of small mistakes in our handwritten copies of the New Testament. There's all these variants, like one copy doesn't have that word, one copy has this word, this one is spelled differently, and things like that. So small, area, small errors started creeping in. And just to give an example of how easy that is, for this sermon... I, I typed on a computer to type my sermon. I had the benefit of Microsoft Word that even shows me when I'm making a mistake and say, okay, you made a mistake, change it. And even with all this technology, with glasses, with light, with comfort, no persecution, I make mistakes. 
I know, guys, I know that's hard to believe. But I do. Pastor Rian makes mistakes. This paragraph that I'm talking about now had at least three mistakes in it that I had to correct for this sermon or this teaching. So yes, I, have mist- I make mistakes and I have glasses. Now, this is even more true if you're trying to copy it by hand, trying to make to get it true. So, so the key question for you and me is then how can we be sure, how can we then know that the copies we do have are the original or are reflecting the original copies that or the original manuscripts that Mark, Luke and John wrote? So let me give you an illustration. Again, James White gives an illustration of this and this is really helpful. He says, imagine I ask 10 of you to sit in a room and just copy word for word the entire Gospel of John. That's your task. Take the Gospel of John and just copy it word for word. You know what the result would be? We would have 10 different copies of John. Um, Because one of you might skip one word there. One of you might misspell that one word you just never can spell. You You know what I mean? Like for me, that's the word necessary. I cannot spell the word necessary. And you see that word and you just spell it and it's wrong. Some of you might even skip entire verses. Your eyes just jump from one verse to the next and you don't even realize you've skipped a whole verse. Now, my question is, how can we get back to the original John if, if there are 10 different copies of John? Well, we simply take the 10 copies and what do we do with them? We compare them to one another. Because not, the, the 10 of us who have made the 10 copies will not make the same 10 mistakes or the same mistakes, sorry, of, of the manuscripts. So the more copies we have, the easier it is to spot the mistake. The more copies you can compare to one another, the easiest is, oh, their verse has been excluded. Their verse has been added. Their uh, word order has been changed, things like that. It's easier to spot them. This is what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism. It is the science of getting back to the original by comparing different manuscripts and more reliable manuscripts to one another to know which one was the, how do we get, we getting back to the original. So how many Greek manuscripts do we have of the New Testament to do this work of comparing to one another? Over 5,800 copies. Over 5,000. Okay, now John Piper in his Ask Pastor John um, talked about the reliability of the Bible and he gave this quote from a, a Greek scholar, Daniel Wallace. And he says, New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data of classical Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 copies. The average of other ancient books is like averaging 20 copies. We have more than a thousand times that for the New Testament. Not only this, but the extant manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier then 500 years after the time of writing. But for the New Testament, we wait mere decades for surviving copies. So the earliest manuscript we have, or manuscripts we have, is AD 135, 135 AD, a few decades after the originals. So the evidence is so strong for the Bible's reliability that we know what Mark wrote, what John wrote, that atheists and unbelievers have to admit this. If they don't admit this, you can just say you are ignorant. You don't know the facts. So with the first question, we can simply say with utter certainty, what we have in our modern translations is reliable. And we can know that this is the words of Paul, the words of Luke, the words of John. 
And here is just one application from this extended uh, historical survey. Do you understand the treasure you have in your hands? The treasure of having a complete Bible in your hands. The luxury of that. All 66 books. It is, it is beyond imagination, the privilege of that. Shouldn't you and I be the best students of the Bible? The best readers, the most frequent readers of our Bibles? We don't have persecution. We have glasses. We have electricity. Okay, well, most of the time, right? We have, we, have, we have Bible apps. We have software. We have so, so much. And yet we seem to be the people who are the most ignorant of the Bible. The most ignorant of what, what this book says. So, beloved, don't throw away this privilege through your laziness. Don't throw away this treasure of God's word through for worthless entertainment that is fluff, that cannot satisfy your soul. Do not throw away the hard work. It's not always fun to read the Bible. Let's, let's be honest. But don't throw away the hard work for cheap gain, selfish gain. Let us be students of our Bibles because of just this great privilege we have. That's the first question. How do we get our Bibles? And I hope, I hope you have at least some idea of how we got. But let's secondly now answer, and, and the second and the third one will be quicker. Um, should Mark 16, 9 and 20 be in our Bibles? So now we've already answered the first one, but now should this ending be in our Bibles? Now after my first answer, I think the second one might surprise you is, I do not think Mark wrote verses 9 to 20. I do not think that. But let me explain. Um, the evidence against verses 9 to 20 being original is very strong. James Edwards, an, an, a, a New Testament scholar who also wrote the commentary on Mark, he gives the evidence for this ending. Listen to this. He says, The two oldest, man, oldest and most important manuscripts of the Bible, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, I think that's right, Omit 16 verse 9 to 20, as to several early translations or versions, including the Old Latin, the Sinaitic Syriac manuscript, about 100 Armenian manuscripts, and the two oldest Georgian manuscripts. Neither Clement of Alexandria nor Origen shows any awareness of the existence of the longer ending, and Eusebius and Jerome attest that verses 9 to 20 were absent from the majority of Greek copies of Mark known to them. <clears throat> So although the majority of those 5,000 manuscripts do include the ending of Mark, the most important manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, do not include them. And that's why it is strong evidence to say that these were added later, and then as the copies were copied, they were just kept in the copies, right? <clears throat> and to be sure, these verses did show up very early, at least from the second century, they did show up, but we have to account for all the above facts we've just mentioned. Another thing to remember is that there were also a shorter ending. So there was a longer ending and a shorter ending to Mark. <clears throat> now there are three reasons why we have the longer ending. Why would people even, if it's added, why would people even want to add it? Or why wasn't Mark, um, why is Mark ending in such an abrupt way? Well, number one, Mark might have intended to write an ending, but was either prevented by death or Peter died, which was the main, his main source for the gospel. That could be one reason. Number, uh, second reason is Mark did write an ending and it got lost. Or thirdly, Mark did in fact intend to end the gospel just at verse 8. And that's why there is no longer ending all those 
And it's this last reason which I think makes the most sense. That I think Mark really did intend to end his gospel on verse 8. Just remember, look at verse 8 again. 16 verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishing had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's how our most reliable and earliest manuscript end the gospel. Remember, it's also a Mark and sandwich. Remember that. And I think it's easy when you read this gospel, you might just feel just dissatisfied with that. How can Mark just end in silence? How can he just end in fear? This doesn't, this doesn't, it's not one of those happy endings that you would expect in the gospel, the good news. So let's, let's, let's help Mark. Let's add a few verses. Um, and just to clarify, verse 9 and 20 is nothing untrue in them. In other words, none of these verses contradict other verses of the Bible. But you can see like these verses were taken from Acts, from other Gospels, and it almost feels like a patchwork of the Gospels and Acts put together to have this longer ending. So the very least we can say is that we should read verse 9 and 20 with caution. You should be cautious when you read it. And the worst we can say, it's not the original, and therefore you can discard it. But Pastor, if this was added, if this is added to our Bibles, how can we trust the rest of our Bibles? How can we know that other parts of the Bible were not added? How can we then know? Well, with my first point, you should be able to answer that question. And the answer is super simple. The same way we know that these verses were added is the same way we know that the rest is not added, that the rest are original. Simple as that. So the same way we can know which verses are Mark's words and which verses are not Mark's words, it's the same way we know which ones did, in fact, Mark write. Another question might be, how do the small differences of the manuscripts affect our faith or what we believe? And again, the simple answer is it doesn't. The differences are so small and the overwhelming amount of them is easy to spot and easy to correct so that we do know what is the original. But in, even in those cases where you are really left with an uncertainty, where it could go either way, either this word or this word, it is often very, very, very small things that doesn't affect anything regarding who Jesus is, our salvation, Christian ethics. It's not going to affect any of those things. So even the manuscript change is not going to affect the way we, what we believe and how we live. But I also want to say, I might be wrong on my conclusion on verse 9 and 20. It could be that verses 9 and 20 were original, but for some reason it was, I don't know, it was added or it was a different, um, written on a different papyri or whatever. I could be wrong. And that's why the last question I want to answer for us is, how do we interpret the difficult verses of verses 9 and 20? This is where you and I need to be good Bible students, good, apply good hermeneutics. The mishandling of Mark 16, verse 9 and 20, is not because people are using a text that shouldn't be there. Okay, let me just repeat that. So the mishandling of Mark 16, verse 9 and 20, is not because people are using a text that shouldn't be there, but the main problem is people don't know how to study the Bible. People don't know how to apply good hermeneutics. And that's why all the abuse comes in with these ending of Mark. Some have come with weird interpretations and like, like we've mentioned, the snake handling and all these things. So I just want to highlight three difficult verses in this text and close with that. And the responsible way to interpret it. Because to interpret the Bible, you need to be responsible. Here's the first difficulty. Verse 12 and 13 is the first difficult verse. Look at verse 12 to 13. 
After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country and they went back and taught the rest, but they did not believe them. That's the story of Jesus on the path of Emmaus with the two disciples um, and how he explained the entire Old Testament and said that all of that referred to him. But did you see the difficult part here when it says he appeared to them how? It says in verse 12, in another form. Which is a very strange way to talk about Jesus appearing. It almost seems to suggest that Jesus wasn't, didn't have a physical body when he appeared to them. Now to be sure, his resurrected body could do things that normal human bodies can't do. Like suddenly appearing into a room, suddenly disappearing. But what is abundantly clear in scripture is that it was a physical body. It was a resurrected body. It wasn't an ethereal spiritual body with no flesh and bones. So I think the best way to interpret this is in line with the rest of scripture is that he appeared to them in another form in the sense that they couldn't recognize him. He appeared to them in the form of a traveler walking next to them, not in the form of, like he used to as a rabbi, or, but in another form. So that's, that's how, I would, how I would interpret this. And I think that's the best way to interpret. Here's the second difficulty, verses 15 to 16. Look at verse 15 to 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the verse seems to imply you're not baptized, you won't be saved. As if baptism itself saves you or, or changes you. But notice, just an observation. Jesus says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But then he compares, he contrasts it to what in verse 16? But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So belief in capture or capture um, includes trusting and obeying. Trusting Jesus and being baptized. So it's, the issue is not baptism. That's not the main issue. The issue is believing in Jesus. And what would be the first thing you'll do when you believe? You will get baptized. That's the first thing you would do as a Christian. Remember, in the, and I, this is sometimes we struggle with this as 21st century Christians because we, our salvation and our baptism is often separated far from one another. While in the New Testament... The, your salvation and your baptism was immediate. It was on the same day, almost at the same moment. That's why Peter, remember Peter's sermon to the, the crowds in Acts 2, he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. I wonder how many of us would say that to people today. You must repent and you must be baptized. <laughs> But that's how the early, early Christians preach, because those two things go together, your faith in Christ and baptism. But he says, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the early church, when you became a Christian, was the same day you were baptized. So there was no separation between your initial salvation and your baptism, because those two things happened together. So no, it's not baptism that saves you. Let's be clear. It's not baptism that saves you, but faith in Christ that saves you. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that saves you. But yes, you should be baptized. And that's the first thing you should do as a Christian. That's the first command Jesus gives you. Be baptized. Because to symbolize your union with him is the picture of baptism. So that's how I think the best way to interpret Mark 16 is not that baptism saves you, 
but that it is an expression of your salvation, and that's often the very first thing you do as a Christian. And now let's talk about the final difficulty, the final difficult verse in verse 17 to 18, the infamous. Let's read it. 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So the, the difficult part of this verse is actually the beginning. When it says, these signs will accompany who? It says, those who believe. Seems to not talk here about the apostles. It seems to speak about those to whom the apostles are preaching to. And these signs will accompany them. And that's where we get the very, very popular teaching that unless you speak in tongues, unless you show these signs, you're either not a Christian or, you know, the, the better charismatic will just say, okay, well, then maybe you just don't, are not fully filled with the Spirit or you're not baptized with the Spirit. You, but when you're baptized, these signs must accompany. That is a sign. The heretical one is saying if, they, if that doesn't accompany, you're not a Christian. But the lighter version of it is, you must speak in tongues, otherwise you're not a, you, you don't have the Holy Spirit or not controlled by the Spirit. And, and that, that's, a, that's a, a mishandling of this text. First, because it flatly contradicts other verses of the Bible. Flatly contradicts it. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 is a great passage for you to remember. So when someone says, you need to speak in tongues, otherwise you don't have the Holy Spirit, just remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 to 30. Paul makes clear, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And now he asks a series of rhetorical questions, all implying no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No. That's the point of the body of Christ. Not everybody is an eye. Not everybody is a foot. Not everybody. We have different gifts, including the supernatural gifts. Even at the early church, not everybody could do these gifts. So that's just probably the best way to say that this cannot mean that unless you do these gifts or show these gifts, then you are either not saved or you don't have the Holy Spirit, but that contradicts Scripture. But secondly, although the, the beginning is important, I also would say I think this specifically or even more importantly applies to the apostles. So although it was a sign that even ordinary Christians believed, if you read the book of Acts where actually most of this signs were happening, it was mainly focused on the apostles themselves. Notice verse 20. I think verse 20 points to that direction when it says, they went out and preached while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So the signs were a confirmation of the apostles' authority to preach the word. So the miracles, the signs of healing, the tongues, all of that was a sign to show that these are the true messages. You can listen to them. And I think God, just on a side note, I think God often does these type of things in places where there is no church, no Christian witness to show in a powerful way that the gospel is the true and all the other religions are false. So I think God does it. But in our cult, cult context where all of us have about five Bibles in our homes, I think we will see less and less of this type of supernatural miracles and things like that. 
But if you look at Acts, you see this. Um, all of these signs came true except for drinking poison. Okay, so if you don't want to, don't taste that one. Okay, taste all the others, but don't taste. Because, okay, because all the other signs came true in Acts. Paul was bitten by a snake in Acts 28, and he didn't die. Okay, so that came true. And they laid hands on the sick, they recovered. When the Spirit fell on the, first the Jews, then the Samaritans, then the Gentiles, all of those moments, they were speaking in tongues to show the early church that they too are now included in the new covenant. They don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to keep the law of Moses. You are part of God's people because they received the Spirit just like we did, Acts chapter 10. But this is not a promise that this will always happen to everyone who believes. That's so important. It's not a promise. I think it was mainly applicable to the apostles in the book of Acts. As the church began, the new covenant was spreading and the gospel spreading across the world. And perhaps some Christians specially gifted with this as well. But to make this text a text for all Christians is to mishandle this text, is to abuse the text. Because you're not taking the whole of scripture into account when you study the Bible. So beloved, let us walk away from the gospel of Mark with thankfulness in our hearts to God and for His Word. Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust that the Bible is reliable? Absolutely. Should we consider Mark 16, 9-20 as part of His original gospel? I do not think so. But that doesn't, done, that doesn't do anything to our faith because by the same way we know that that section is not original, that's how we know the rest is. And is there anything in Mark 16 that we, which contradicts what we believe? No, because if you apply good hermeneutics, studying the Bible, you will find that the Scripture harmonize and Scripture is one. But I want to close with just again to remind you the main message of Mark. So we could leave here with more knowledge, but I am a preacher after all, so I have to say something. <laughs> okay. Remember the main point of the entire Gospel of Mark. Mark 1 verse 1 begins with Jesus is the Son of God. He has all authority over demons, sickness, even death. He has the authority to forgive our sins. So Mark chapter 1 to chapter 8 is all about his miracles, his power, his authority. But then from chapter 8 to, to the rest of the gospel, it is a shift because it shows that this same Christ, the same Son of God, is also can only be rightly understood in the context of suffering. It's the only way you can understand Jesus. Remember, at the end of the gospel, when the centurion stood facing the cross and saw that in this way Jesus died, he says, this is the Son of God. So the way the gospel begins is the way the gospel ends to show, yes, he's the all-powerful, almighty Son of God who hung on a tree. That's where you will see his full glory. That's where you'll see his full love, his full majesty. His, that is his throne. That Jesus climbed on for you and me to be our King, our Savior, our Messiah. Surely this man is the Son of God. Only in Him can you find forgiveness. Only in Him can you find true life. And now what Jesus calls us to do is to follow Him. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow Christ on the costly road of obedience. The same road of suffering. So the, the formula of the Gospel of Mark is suffering now, glory later. Our glory is coming, but not now. Now we are being persecuted, hated, criticized, beheaded, burned alive. That is what some of our brothers and sisters are going through right now. But it's okay. It's worth it. 
because Christ is coming again. Do you see him? Do you believe in him as the son of God? I invite you to repent of your sins, be baptized and follow him. Amen. Amen. Let's close together. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you and we are humbled by your, your word, your gospel. Thank you for the beautiful gospel of Mark, the fast pace, the one who often says immediately, immediately to just dazzle us with the miracles and the works of Christ, who he is, his teachings. Thank you that he is the almighty one, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the high priest, the prophet, the true prophet who came to bring us the word of God. For he is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God. If we look at Jesus, we see you, Father. We see you in all your glory, especially on the cross. It's amazing. It's astounding to even think and consider that this one, the one who has all authority, would hung on a tree for me, for us, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us, to give us eternal life. Father, I pray that we would embrace the suffering Messiah and that we would walk in his steps to embrace suffering now, glory later. Embrace sacrificially giving up our rights, our privileges for others that they too might see the love of God in our hearts and through our deeds and our words. Father, I pray that, that we would truly treasure your word, that we would not neglect this great treasure of having the entire bible in our laps in one book oh lord please guard us from laziness guard us from apathy guard us from being from looking for quick fixes with our bible reading but help us to do the long marathon run of reading your word over and over again from start to finish until we see you again so lord please increase Incline our hearts to your word and not to selfish gain. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your law. And then help us, Lord, to live it out, to walk and to be the disciples of Christ that you've called us to be. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.